0: Hey everyone, I'm Julie Gunlock, host of the Bespoke Parenting Hour. For those new to the program, this podcast is focused on how parents should custom tailor their parenting style to fit what's best for their families, themselves, and most importantly, their kids. Today, I'm going to be talking to my friend, Carrie Sheffield, Carrie is a senior pol- policy analyst at IWF. She's had a long career in D.C. as a reporter and broadcaster and commentator on all sorts of TV stations. She's earned a master's degree in public policy from Harvard University and was a Fulbright Scholar in Berlin. She began her work in the investment and finance sector and then began a career in policy in Washington, first at the American Enterprise Institute. And she's been at several other think tanks around DC, eventually coming to IWF and working with me there. I love working with Carrie. Carrie has received dozens of awards for her policy and media work. Much deserved. Really glad to have you on, Carrie.
1: Julie, thanks for having me, and I love working with you too. <laughs>
0: um, and we worked even before you came to IWF. Um, we worked. You inter, you used to interview me on your talk shows. That was always fun, and I'm thrilled that you're with IWF now. You know, I I was when I was preparing this, I was going through your bio, and I have to say, your bio is enormously impressive. Um, but. And, you know, I think sometimes when I read these bios, I think, what are people thinking? And I think a lot of people might hear that bio and say, boy she must have had a ton of connections before she came to DC or, and this is, I feel like this happens quite often in DC, you know, she might be from some wealthy family that was well-connected um, to have landed where she did. And again, you have this incredibly um impressive uh, bio, but in reality you are an incredible policy analyst, but also have a lot of media experience, but that's really not the case with you. Is it Um, in terms of, being from some big family with connections to get you started in Washington. That, that wasn't how it happened. Right. Well, I am from a big
1: family with seven siblings, but not from a family that uh, was connected in Washington and uh, certainly uh, have really worked my butt off for everything that I've gotten in life. And I've made a lot of mistakes that I deeply regret, but as I, there's an author who uh, she says, you know my mistakes were legendary, but God's grace was even more legendary, and that's how I feel. I've made a lot of mistakes that I
0: regret, but
1: having you know leaned on my faith, that's how I've gone through them all. In addition to the trauma that I had as a kid.
0: Well, let's dig into that a little bit. Um, you know, you had an unusual childhood, and some people would say you know quite challenging. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up, how you grew up, and some of the challenges you faced.
1: Yeah, so I am I just signed with a book where I'm going to be telling the full backstory. Uh, well, I, I want to respect the privacy of my siblings. So that's, I'm near, you know, making sure that the story is really focused on the struggles that I went through while being empathetic. So it's sort of, uh, you know, this this dance that I, I want to be respectful and talking with my siblings about it. But yeah, um, we were raised in a very abusive environment that I would describe as a cult environment. Mm. Um, where my father believes that he's a prophet and in order to satisfy the prophetic call in his life, um, he basically, and he was doing it before he got married and and had the eight kids um, that he lived the the life of an itinerant street musician. And he has an incredible resume of a classical guitarist. He was Mm. self-taught. And uh, if any of your listeners know about Andre Segovia uh, he was probably the world's best, most talented classical guitarist that we know. Um, and he hand-selected my father to be one of his master class students and mentored him with his guitar music compositions. Wow. Uh, my father won the National Young Composers Contest. Um, and this was all just through his own. He ended up being a professor of guitar at Brigham Young University. But he gave that all up, he said, because God called him to be a street Preacher. And so he would play his guitar on the streets with a little amplifier and then come, uh, people would come and he would pass out Mormon brochures to mm. try to convert them to Mormonism. And uh, and then eventually, as we grew older, he made us all do it with him. So we had the whole family, 10 people playing on sh- street corners um, and we lived in a motor home. So the name of the book is called The Motor Home Prophecies. Um, and it was a very stressful and traumatic environment to the point where two of my brothers developed schizophrenia, um, even though they had no signs of it when they were younger. And, you know, it's an ongoing debate. I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist, but everything I've read about schizophrenia and being close to two people who have it, it's usually a combination of nature and nurture that, um, you could have chemical imbalance tendencies, which we do have on my dad's side. Um, but certainly the, the nurture or the lack of, Nurture in our case, I have no doubt contributed to their schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them tried to sexually assault me when I, uh, or he tried to rape me. He sexually assaulted me or, you know, he groped me when I was a teenager. Um, and that was really a catalyst to, to me to say, okay, like, do I believe my dad's a prophet? Cause when you grow up, believing yeah. uh, your dad, like I believed he was a prophet for a long time. And but then as I got older I started to see how things he would say would not square up with what the, the LDS church would say. And I want to be careful and, and clear to say that what our family did was, was cultish, but the Mormon church is not a cult. I don't believe that. And some hear me say that. And they're like, oh, you're saying Mormon is a cult. I'm like, no, it's not. I, I, in fact, my, my parents were excommunicated from the Mormon church, the official LDS church um, for being so extreme. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I, and I'm sad. I'm sad. I think they should have been excommunicated years earlier, but they were excommunicated after I was an adult. But um, but because he was so good at, at running away, basically, the, 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 the justice didn't catch up with him. I ended up going to 17 public schools and homeschool.
0: Um, Carrie, which- Carrie let, let me let me stop you one sec, because I wanted to talk to you about being a young child. You have a number of brothers and sisters Were there other family members involved that could have helped and didn't? I'm just curious about, you're in this situation where you're clearly in an unstable family environment. I think a lot of people wonder at these moments, where was social services? And, you know, honestly, Carrie, we have talked, I've had guests on this show and certainly at IWF, we talk a lot about the problems with the foster care system, but were there any attempts of state intervention in your family situation? I know that you've talked about, Um, Also, sometimes being on government assistance, which is, you know, something I think on the right, we tend to be like, oh, but there are families who actually really do need to bridge the gap between, um, you know, maybe when they have a job and when they don't have a job. So talk to me a little bit about that growing up and and what the role was. And if anyone tried to help, anyway, I'm going on, but you get my question here.
1: Yeah, no. And it's something that I've thought a lot about just over the years. Um, So... Yes, when I was in, I was pre-K, so it was before my kindergarten. It's, I was either four or five, around that age. We were living somewhere in suburban uh, Massachusetts. The town was called Marlboro, like, small working class town. And I distinctly remember the social services trying to take us away. And they showed up, and our my dad, like, really coached us beforehand to say, mm-hmm. like, I'm great. Like, tell them how happy you are and how great I am. And, um, and I was very loyal to him and we all were because he was our dad, you know, it's like, you circle the wagons and um, you feel threatened. And so I do remember they took us to their offices and you know, those little wiry bead uh, mazes that, yeah. uh, you know, they're on a little platform and, and you, I, I love those things and they had one there, but I remember being like, I'm not going to do it. It's, it's like a temptation and they're trying to take me away and they hate my dad's. So I'm not going to touch it. I want to, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but uh, we either, you know, either convinced them enough to not take us away immediately, but, or we just, I mean, we disappeared, we went to Utah. And so mm. we never, they never took us away from there. Um, I do remember also that apparently they, some of my, so I have four older brothers. I'm the first girl. And I guess some of my brothers had told them about how he he said he told us later, our father, that, you know, we were too poor to have a television. So I would entertain my kids by telling them stories of my street fights. And so my brothers told the social services about his street fights and they're like, oh, my gosh, he's a violent guy. He's getting into all these brawls because he would when he would play his music on the street corners, he would have, you know, fellow buskers or bums or like homeless people. Like they were you know, they didn't like him sometimes, and so he would get in these fist fights, and sometimes he landed in jail um and he he said, so he had all these wild stories, and I'm sure he embellished them, but uh but and they were entertaining, like like my dad's an entertaining guy, like his and the thing is like his father was a politician in Utah, actually, so he came from actually a very strong family. My dad's sister was miss United States, Miss USA. oh wow, yeah, she was miss Utah USA, and then miss USA. Uh, funny story. She was actually the first runner up, but then the the winner, it was determined it was a fraud because she was married and had two kids. So <laughs> yeah, my aunt lost her crowning moments, but she got it later. Wow. <laughs> got the crown shipped to her. But, um, but yeah, so she, he came from a good family and... Um, and his father had, had was a, a really savvy, they didn't have money growing up, but his father was a savvy real estate investor. Like he, he bought out some land in Utah that appreciated like exponentially. So by the time we were adults, um, it was worth a lot of money, but, we, but they never saw it growing up. And I never saw it um, until I was 23 and I got some inheritance, well, not a huge amount, but it was like, but I had no idea what to do with it. And I ended up giving it to my uncle who, who, like destroyed the investment, and I was like, "What's wrong with like I have, mm. yeah." So, but, um, so and he had siblings, and and my mom, and they all, um, were really set like so on my mom's side. They, um, it's all sisters, so uh, very strong women, and they were all really sad because you know my mom growing up was always kind of shy, and I think my dad really exploited that to really just you know sure. charm her. Uh, He's a very charismatic guy uh, when he wants to be, at least for the short term. But um, and just took her away, and that's one of the that's one of the classic abuser tactics is to take take an abusive woman away from her family and to brainwash her. And she brain they brainwashed her to the point where she would not tell her family where she was. So you know, so and so they were left with this choice: do we call the cops on our own sibling and risk an escalation of maybe he gets violent or maybe he does something to the kids? Yeah. Um, and then half the time they didn't know where we were cause we were in motorhomes and mobile homes and tents. Like my mom gave birth in a tent, like, which is just insane to me. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but she hated her family. Like she believed that her, like she didn't go to her own mother's funeral because she said her mother was a slut. Um, cause she had had a child out of wedlock before she got married. And so she refused to go to her funeral. Um, and so, so that was part of it where it was like, uh, a Stockholm syndrome or just Sure. You know, willing association of where we were. And then on my dad's side, uh, I just found out more recently that some of his siblings were trying to do things to take us away. Um, And they tried some different things and it didn't work. Um, And the way they ended up just trying to make it better was that they ended up just taking some of my grandpa's inheritance and giving it to him so that we didn't starve and we didn't have to go on welfare anymore. And and to me, it's kind of like giving money to Iran, where they use the money to suppress
0: the people even more. Right. Now, did once your father received that money, was he able to improve your condition? Did things get better or was it wasted?
1: Well, it was it was marginally better. So we didn't we didn't go on welfare as much. So we were on public welfare. And. Um, uh, but we we more often were on Mormon welfare, which mm. to, to LDS Church's credit, they have this amazing system of private charity, um, which I, I'm just giving a plug. Like Utah has the top social mobility in the entire country. Um, they have strong families and uh, they have this amazing private welfare program. And it's called the Bishop's Storehouse. So we ate from there all the time. And it's just like, it's like generic Mormon brand, anything like, Usually we are most commonly got like cereal or pasta, and I do remember we had like this cracked wheat that had weevils in it, which was disgusting because like it's in the storehouse and it was like <laughs> we eat it
0: and then we are like, in the, in the milk. Uh, and so, your your mom is screaming, "It's extra protein, just eat it!" Right? <laughs> well, I, I it, and that's now come in vogue, I guess, to eat bugs. Yeah, exactly. Yes, you are very vogue, but this is the thing. I think a lot of people uh, you know i i i think we're we're in a, a situation right now in the United States where kids are going to be recovering from sort of the covid shenanigans uh for a lot of years, certainly not the same you know i'm not saying that necessarily these children were you know abused or starving, but there has been this sort of upheaval in what we would consider a normal childhood and sort of normal, the normal trajectory of education and that kind of stuff. It strikes me as you could provide some good information to, to even kids going through this, not that kids are necessarily listening to this podcast, but, you know, you certainly went through a tough time in your childhood and yet obviously have recovered. And, and, you know, I, I, I don't know your relationship necessarily with your family, um, but you have a great life. How, how do you, how as a child do you come out? I mean, when you went to college, and I see that you went to, you got your master's degree at Harvard. You were a Fulbright fellow, you know, in Berlin. I mean, how does one, you know, while living in these conditions, probably in high school? I mean, you you lived with your family all up until you left for for school, correct? I do know that. So, I mean, what what happened? You know, when it was time to leave, or when you were thinking about college, did you have the support of your family? And, you know, and if not, like, how does how does a child actually self propel uh, like that?
1: Yeah, well, um, I haven't read the book Educated by Tara Westover, but um, I've met her and um, our stories are very similar. I don't so I don't know all the details of how she did it, but her story has been on. uh, And I have no uh, diluted grandeur that I'll sell even a fraction of the number of books. She she sold eight million books. Um, but she, and Barack Obama endorsed her book on his reading list and Michelle Obama did as well, but it, uh, it's a story of growing up in a Mormon abusive environment in Idaho. And she didn't set foot into in a classroom until she was, I think her senior year. Um, and, but she and her brother, uh, got their hands on some standardized testing prep books and she put herself through BYU and got a full scholarship to Cambridge for a PhD. Mm. And, um, when I took my standardized testing, I was able to get some software and use it on a very ancient computer and, oh. and uh, be able to, and the first time I took the standardized testing, I was like, wow, I'm actually, cause they were like, they put like the average score mm. where someone in your range went to. And I was like, wow, like I could maybe go to Johns Hopkins or I could like, like I'm actually pretty smart. Oh. I, you know, even though I had been told that I was an evil slut my whole life.
0: <laughs> oh, dear. so I want to, so, okay, we, so, so you took, so you take this
1: test. <laughs> yeah. And, so I see- and I, at the time I was going to homeschool and, and when I took the ACT, we were living in a shed in the Ozarks of Missouri, because my dad had this dream to have a theater in Ransom, Missouri, because there are a lot of Mormon families down there, sure. like the Osmonds and the Duttons and the, um, uh, the, the Hughes family and, and the Brett family. So we tried to, to, to get a theater the because my dad's so mentally ill that it was a total failure and a waste of everything and we were living in a shed. And I was like, I don't, and then my brother had tried to rape me and I was just like, I don't want this life for myself. It, oh, oh, and also the, the, the other catalyst was my brother trying to rape me. And then at that point, I was like, you know, I'd have to decide if I like believe he's a prophet or not. Because so my four older brothers were still living at home. They still yeah. they still believed he was a prophet. Well, one of them had schizophrenia, but he still was part of the mission, he called it. Um, and I was like, I don't know if I believe this mission anymore. So what I did was it was actually an investigative journalism project, kind of my first. I decided to investigate my father and whether I believed he was a prophet. Mm-hmm. And so what I did was he, at the time, was actually for many years, his whole life, he's talked about wanting to write his autobiography and so he had a few boxes of papers and things and letters um, that were stored in a, a fiberglass trailer attached to the back of our motorhome. And so I said, you know, at that point, I'd been writing for the local newspaper, um, in which they had a weekly column. I didn't do it every week, but it, but they let every week a young person write in. It was called Young Voices. Um, it's actually the, the same newspaper where Brad Pitt's mom wrote an office that oh, went viral. Yeah. So because he went to my rival high school where I ended up graduating down in the Ozarks, but um, years ahead of me, I never met him. But um, but so I was like, you know, I like writing, like maybe I can help you. Um, And so I sorted through his boxes to really just understand who he was. And I was typing them up into this really ancient word processor, very basic um, to put it all in ink for him. And as I was sorting through it, I, it became very clear to me that that his family was very disturbed by him. Um, There were letters from his mom and it was back in the day when they had carbon copies of letters. so So he had his copy and his letters just grew. So he, you know, some of them were when he was a Mormon missionary over in England, like an official LDS, you know, name tag in London. And, he just got so preachy to his parents and telling them how sinful they were and all these things. And his mom would write these very concerned letters to him and he was just getting radicalized. And, um, and I just was like, wow, I, I love my grandma. Like I, I, I was really you know upset by that. And then the the, the straw that broke the camel's back in the moment where I was like, he's not a prophet. I found some handwritten revelations that he had written down and they were written in Elizabethan English, like King James Version Bible English, which is what the LDS wow. Church, yeah, is King James, and they were written. So, so the LDS Church has four books of scripture. They have the Bible, they have the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. So they have four basically Bibles, you know, including the Bible. Sure. Um, and Doctrine and Covenants is what they believe is kind of like Muhammad, where he handwrit, he wrote down revelations from God or from the angel. And the Doctrine of Covenants is Joseph Smith's handwritten revelations from God that were about how to run the church. And these handwritten revelations that I found written in Elizabeth English were to my dad and they were from God. And they were using his God name, which was Daniel Strong, which he had told us before that that was his God name was named Daniel Strong. Uh, And and my mom was Joan Strong. And uh, and I was like. So it was like, and thus the Lord said to my servant, Daniel, thou shalt take thy wife. They will be, you know, they will, thy will be, you know, thy family will face persecution and all. Like it was like yeah. his own version of the doctrine and covenants. And I my um, started to shake and I was just like, he's a false prophet. Because I was still very devout LDS. And I was like, he's trying to be, because in these church there's only one prophet and he lives in right. South. You know, and I was like, he's trying to do his own thing. He's a rogue prophet. So I was like, I don't believe this. And and I knelt down and it was winter and there was this little heat, little um, heater that I had going to keep me warm. And I knelt down and I was like, God, I don't believe he's a prophet. And if, if you want me to stay, please show me, otherwise I'm going to leave. You know, I just left that there and uh, God never showed me anything to keep. Me right. To and so I told my dad, I wanted to leave. And what he did was he raised his hand in the square. And he prophesied and he said, I prophesy in the name of Jesus, if you're raped and murdered, that or sorry, that if you leave, you will be raped and murdered. Good
0: grief.
1: Yeah. So I was disowned. And so I. Uh,
0: How old were you at this point?
1: I was 18. And it, I was 17 or 18, right around that time. And so I was like, well, either my brother's going to rape me or if I leave, I'm, like, I'm going to be raped. And so I, I just, I, was, I had a decision to make and I chose freedom. Oh, uh, So I guess to answer your question, as far as like advice I would give to people, because, you know, when when I left, I was disowned. In some ways, it was a good quarantine because it, you know, he wouldn't allow me to come home because he's like, you're full of Satan. I was the first to leave. And he's like, you're going to corrupt your siblings. You can't come home. So I was was disowned all through college, which, like I said, in some respects was good because it kept me away from that insanity. Um, but I also felt this deep rejection and sorrow because, you know, my mom also had a, pro- and she prophesied I would get schizophrenia. Um, so there's all these false prophecies spoken over my life. And then my dad also told me later on when I was in college that God told him I had an abortion. I was like, I don't know how that's possible because I was a virgin. And I was like, there's no such yeah. an abortion. So no, I didn't have an abortion <laughs> like and I was like, so, okay. Yeah. If I ever thought he was a prophet and now he's telling me this thing, which is a biological, not reality. Like I know he's not a prophet. So I, I think that there is a room for therapy, like a good therapist. Uh, if you're a believer, get a believer therapist. Um, and the way I got through all of it, I like to say is a combination of prayer and therapy, prayer P. Um, and a lot of the way I have made a lot of self-sabotaging mistakes. Um, I've been diagnosed with PTSD, depression. Um, I had severe uh, anxiety to the point where I was hospitalized seven times. Um, And I had fibromyalgia, uh, which is a whole other thing about how I feel about Western medicine. It's been totally divorced from body and mind and spirit. And they try to pump you full of drugs. And two of my hospitalizations were from drug reactions that they gave me to drugs because they had no idea what the hell they were doing. Um, And this was pre-COVID, so when COVID hit, I kind of felt this Freud Freud of like, you all are horrible
0: people and you almost felt, right. like you kind of deserve this. <laughs> like, um, which that's know- a whole, that's a whole nother podcast, Carrie. Yeah, but I, mean, I, but I, I do, this is the, the one thing that I think is interesting and maybe you can sort of, we can conclude by talking about you did turn yourself away, not just from the Mormon church, but in general, God, um, you turned, you had, you said you had become agnostic at one point and i think we do need to have you back on because i do want to talk about this a little bit further but one of the things and i bet this would be part of your i'm not i'm not you i don't mean to speak for you but i bet part of your advice to people would be to not turn your back on God. In fact, to, to figure out ways to strengthen your relationship with God and, um, and tell us a little bit about that journey. I know that's terrible to say, and quickly tell us about your, uh, your entire faith journey. But, but I, but I do think there was a point and I think everyone could, after dealing with that sort of childhood, which was definitely wrapped up in religion, obviously, um, turning your back away and becoming agnostic, but what made you turn back to the church and not, not necessarily the Mormon church to sort of give us a little bit of information on, on that.
1: Yeah. Well, I think my biggest takeaway is, is first understanding the very big difference between religion and relationship like divine relate. God is not religion. And I think that we're at this, this moment in our society where young people, especially are turning away from institutions, be it faith, I mean, trust, trust across the board in our institutions is crumbling, whether it's government or schools or medicine. And faith is a big one where we're also seeing the de- decline in trust. And for me, as someone who was deeply abused by re- very religious people, yes, I walked away from faith. I was agnostic for almost 12 years. And because the way I thought about it was, if God exists, he's probably a jerk because he allowed this to happen to me or or he's just indifferent or he's someone who is proactively like trying to like hurt people because people who use his name to do, you know, do horrible things. Um, you know, they give God a bad name. And I like to say it's sort of like a knockoff purse with a Gucci with a big G (laughs) that's like, that's a knockoff. That's not God. And it took me a long time I'm writing a whole book about the journey of how it happened, but it was a combination of, um, really surrendering and being through and I know this is going to sound really funny Julie but there's a great book that I recommend um called uh counterfeit gods by a pastor named Tim Keller um who's fantastic he's uh he has cancer right now he's older but he had a really long career in New York City building a church called Redeemer but he's a very well-known author people compare him as like the modern day C.S. Lewis Hmm. Tim Keller's book is all about each chapter is a false idol that we pursue, that we put as a counterfeit God, be it career, sex, power of money. And it's like, I pretty much tried all of those, you know, and they kept failing. I tried my career and then I got laid off from a company, tried uh, re- dating relationships, you know, getting married. And I was in a, just a really bad engagement situation. And I broke it off, was heartbroken. And it was just, and then finally, I thought I had settled on a God that wouldn't fail me. And that was the God of politics and public policy. You know, and I went to the Harvard Kennedy School, which is named after JFK. And I think in some ways I had kind of put Kennedy as sort of like a messiah type figure for me, kind of like Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King. And to me, that was my religion. That was my higher calling, my higher purpose in life. And I think a lot of especially secular liberal young people have this, too. I was a secular conservative. That's what I called myself. And I had done that in the same way that a lot of progressives do. It's, It's less common for conservatives to do. But I was certainly one of those people. And then, so this is the funny part, then Donald Trump happened. And I was like, <laughs> I can't worship <wear> that. <laughs> <was like>, no, <laughs> now, I had an existential crisis. <laughs> I was a never-Trumper till the end. Like, sure. I didn't vote for Hillary either. Of course, there was no way in hell I vote for Hillary. But right. I, I wrote in Ben Sass as my protest candidate. In no.
0: York,
1: which I deeply regret now.
0: <laughs> oh, no, I'm, Oh, Carrie, I'm going to make fun of you for that. But go on. Okay.
1: Yeah. But it was this this existential moment. So I actually have Donald Trump to thank for turning me to faith in the sense that because I was sitting on the sidelines and I had built my whole career toward, you know, working on a campaign or working in the white house, you know, like that was the pinnacle of what would have been successful. And then to be like, I can't get on board with this guy. Like he says these things about women. He donated to Hillary. He has no track record. Like to me, there wasn't any daylight between him and Hillary. I just didn't, I didn't have faith that he would do what he was said he was going to do. And then he'd done all these terrible, said terrible things. Right. Um, so I was just like, I can't, I can't, I need something else in my life to fill this void of purpose and meaning. Um, since the Republican party is not going to do it for me. And so that's yeah. when I started uh, to go to church and I started to go to Tim Keller's church in New York. And, um, And then just I kept showing up for God and God kept showing up for me. So each week I either went to church or I went to small group. And, uh, yeah, that's how it started.
0: Well, and I think that I think that a lot of people, young people um, go through that. And that doesn't necessarily take a terrible childhood. Um, You know, you can you can have a pretty great childhood and still in, you know, your you know you're. Early adulthood turn away, but I do think that as people get older, um, they need that not only structure, but they need to believe in something bigger. Yeah, you know, Carrie, I, I think, you know, you've talked a lot about, um, I've read some of your writing on the subject of, of family and, and your hopes to someday have a family, um, and, you know, get married and settle down and have kids. If you were to pick a parenting style, or maybe you're like me, and you just sort of do this patchwork quilt of different styles that sort of fit your family, but is there someone in the parenting realm or someone you admire or you look to or you think is a as a, or someone who like you, recovered um from a very difficult childhood and is trying to figure things out as she raises her whole own family? Um, is there someone you you sort of admire and maybe would employ in your style of parenting if that day comes?
1: Well, I have to admit I haven't read parenting books really. <laughs> I do like uh, Emily Oster. Yes, uh, of course. It seems like she makes a lot of sense. And it's very logical. Um, and two of my brothers um, are married and have they each have two kids, and uh, the, you know they they don't want to pass on you know generational course. And so I guess, I guess I have to be mindful of not being reactive of like, okay, I know what I don't want as a parent. Um, You know, when I had my startup that used to come on Bold TV, um, it wasn't, they weren't my children, but I I mentored and had a lot of really young college students and and young people on staff. Um, So I felt like in some respects, it was sort of like, and I'm not saying that career, but, but I just had a taste of like, yeah. Yeah, really, you know, I, patience. I want to be a patient parent, um, and I definitely, uh, you know, I, 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 think explaining to kids the the importance of faith and being with faithful people in church um, to me that's very important. But understanding that your own relationship with God is far more important. But it's it's not about control, and, and I think. God is not about controlling us. He gave us free will. And as a parent, that's what I want to. I want to give my kids free will, but I also want to know um, to, to know that there are rules. You know, anything yeah. that's a problem when I see parents go way too far on the other spectrum, um, there's a phrase that I think is really interesting, and I think it might apply to parenthood, which is that you cannot break God's commandments. You can only break yourself on them. Mm. And I think that good parenting is teaching your kids, you know, good principles and good roles, Um, And but letting them make some mistakes. Um, I think that that's part of why I made so many mistakes later on was because I wasn't allowed to make mistakes when I was a kid. Mm. Um, it was just such a sheltering and abusive and traumatizing environment that I really didn't have those normal high school experiences of like, oh, you know, this boy, this and this, you know, it was like, I'm in a motorhome and I have to figure out how to like not be frozen this summer and like get my homeschool done in the mail like there's yeah you know, so i made some yeah you know, i didn't it was like a feral cat when i left home. <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, so uh yeah so i think uh th- those are some big ideas of how i would think about parenting
0: well carrie i think um you had uh I, you know i, I don't I, I always feel bad saying this but but i you reveal pretty much here you you've had you had a tough childhood and you really have created a life of meaning of meaning of um of doing great works and i admire you a lot um for sort of coming out of that and i know you still have good relationship with your siblings and your nieces and nephews um and and that that is also a wonderful thing to see um you've got a really encouraging story tell us um about your latest book Um, or your new book, I'm sorry, your new book coming out. Not, it has not, I don't know if it has a title yet, but you just reveal what you can here. Yeah.
1: Title is called Motorhome Prophecies. um, And it's, the manuscript's due January 2nd. And uh, so my guess is it'll be, I mean, we'll see. I'm learning this new publishing world. I'm hoping possibly next summer for it to come out um and the publisher's Hachette, uh which is a publisher out of paris in new york and and i have a a fantastic agent who helped me arrange it he's uh jonathan berninski with athos um and i think a big message i want to leave with people again is that even if you work from a traumatized background you don't have to pass that trauma on to, to the next generation and that's like and even more societally when there's all this talk about crt and you know intersectionality and all this heteronormative assaults like i wasn't that far left but i was also really angry at judeo-christian systems for a long time and and i I think that part of my journey was to understand the healthy parts of you know it's not it's actually that's actually a human made thing. It's not from God, and that and we need to develop those beliefs with God. And also, my father was actually abused by the babysitter, and I know that that traumatized him, and I know that he passed that on to us. And, uh, but we can break that cycle. And I think that, that that's that's the the difference from believing in the systemic, uh, you know destruction of your life, that your identity is based in systemic oppression is so counter to the idea that the individual and the connection with God, that's empowering. That's, you are not, uh, you know, you're not going to be crushed by the system. And I am a testament to the fact that even though I was in a horrible system growing up, I've been able to cry because I I didn't put my identity uh, as an abused person at the forefront of my mind. And I think that that's what's happening in society. Right? People, uh, they think I'm abused, I'm abused, I'm abused. I'm black, therefore I'm abused. I'm, I'm a girl, therefore I'm abused. If that's how you grow through your whole life, then you will remain there. And so you have to reject that. You have to view yourself as an individual, not as someone who is solely trapped in a specific role.
0: Well, Carrie, I can't thank you enough, um, for spending some time with me and talking about this. I feel like this, uh, th- this very small conversation we've had is going to launch a thousand podcasts because, or a thousand episodes because there's so much more I want to explore with you. Um, so I hope you'll come back and, and we can tackle some of these, these other issues, but thank you so much for sharing your story today.
1: Thank you, Julie.